0: So, yesterday, they had this the planning foods. You guys, made who made it? Yeah. Okay. Well, a couple. Okay. So, apparently, I, I blame this all on uh, Cheryl Fairfield because uh, she had that raw chicken. I saw it on Facebook, liked it, right? Had that raw chicken and she showed me how to do it. I think that's what brought all the flies. Because <laughs> I, I came in after planning foods and they are like all over the chairs. I'm like, nice. It must have been an awesome event. And I saw the pictures, and Cheryl, like, doing this with a chicken on Facebook, and I'm like, okay, I get it. Uh, now, a lot of people have been asking, what's the deal with pumpkin killing? And so I only have to answer it once. I'm going to do it right here, right now. Uh, what normally happens is uh, we have a farm in town that plants a bunch of pumpkins for us to use. Uh, this year, th- they ordered 200 plants to grow, and because of the weather and everything going on, they they only got 50 out of that 200, and those 50 didn't even grow very well. And so, and so we didn't have a whole lot of pumpkins, so we talked to another farm in town. They said they might have some, and in the end, we could really only find about 100 pumpkins. And so on Tuesday, uh, we had some people calling around, and they found a couple places to get some pumpkins, but the cheapest we could find was $3.50 a pumpkin. And we needed at that point probably 300 pumpkins, which was over $1,000. And we thought with planting roots and all that we've been going through, it was, it's much more physically responsible for us to say, sorry, we're not going to launch pumpkins but funny thing happened so we called on tuesday and canceled the reservation for orchid hill that we had and then somebody found some cheaper pumpkins for us and so we called wednesday morning back and someone had already taken the reservation so so what we are going to do today though is we are going to show up two to four thirty we are going to have pumpkins they are free today and so if you show up with your kids whatever come and carve pumpkins with us and and take one home we're even going to have a couple smaller pumpkins and some uh those those water balloon launchers so you can, like, launch them. So it's not going to be the same. We know. But next year, you'll be even more excited about next year. And the anticipation. Absence makes the heart grow fonder of the cannon. But I think the cannon's is going to be here, so you can, as- 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 you can look at it and take pictures next to it. It'll be kind of cool. Uh, yeah, This would have been so cool. Click. Anyway, uh, one more thing before we start. Uh, next week, don't forget, you get an extra hour of sleep. It's the best Sunday of the year, I know. It's like, wow, I'm going to preach an extra hour. No, I'm just kidding. So <laughs> set your clocks back, extra hour of sleep. It's going to be amazing. Uh, it, I, I think for about two weeks after this time change, I feel great. I'm getting up. I'm like, ooh, this is wonderful. It's so awesome. Set your clocks. Unless you're going to be late for service early, late. I don't know how it works, but you get an extra hour of sleep, so that's, that's, that's what's good. My wife goes, so am I going to get up and it's going to be even darker? And I go, no, 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 it's going to be lighter earlier. It's going to be dark when you get home. So, oh, so, anyway, yay. Welcome to Element. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. The flies are keeping them safe for you. No? You are going to be a horrible crowd this morning. Okay, <laughs> poor John, loosen up. I'll t- <laughs> So there's sermon notes on like me tables around the room. Uh, you'll have sermon notes and questions inside of those. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called UVersion. Click on live in UVersion. It will brings up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes and verses and all that goes along with today's message. Stand with me. We're reading of God's word. We'll get started. This is John chapter 15, verse 17. It says, hold on. Oh, it's going to kill that fly. It says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take us as a people, that you would teach us how to love one another by how we understand your great love first given to us. That everything that we do comes out of understanding who you are first. And that our lives and our hearts and everything we do begins to change because of your great love for us that we then extend to others around us. Amen. I'm seat. So we are closing in on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, end of the Sermon on the Mount. This is week 37. If we You have a Bible open to Matthew chapter 7. I know you're thinking, how can Element spend like an entire year going through three chapters of the Bible? You're welcome. It's just a gift that we have. Be happy. It actually could have been longer because we start going through some of this stuff. I'm like, oh, I should have talked about that. Oh, I should have talked about that. But I'm editing myself, you know, like a good Project Runway contestant. Oh boy, oh boy. Um, Actually, we started this series, it was going to be 24 weeks, now it's 47 weeks, but today we're going to talk about a verse that almost everybody has heard, we hit it briefly at the end of last week, but we're going to go about it kind of backwards, kind of backwards. Now how today's going to work, is I'm briefly going to talk about the verse, then we're going to veer way off course, but it's totally one course, because I know where I'm going, then we're going to come back to the verse at the end, I've got a trajectory, I've got a plan, this isn't haphazard, you're going to think I'm lost without a map. But I do know where I'm going, so I'm going to have you come with me. And if not, I'm going to play it off like I knew what I was doing anyway. So, uh, as we've seen, by the time we reach Matthew chapter 7, we have been through a lot. Jesus has talked about a lot of things. He's talked about blessing and how we understand that blessing. Then relates to how we become salt and light in the world. And then when you become salt and light in the world, we live and worship God in brand new ways. We understand what true worship actually is. Then Jesus talks about these negative and positive things that pull us out of relationship with God. God. And so you get to Matthew chapter 6, Jesus starts talking in the Lord's Prayer, and he resets and refocuses on the fatherhood of God, who God is. And then out of that comes our understanding of prayer, and out of that comes our understanding of generosity, and out of that comes ways that we don't have to be anxious in the world, because we trust God for everything. And then Matthew chapter 7 starts, we don't have to be anxious with one another, we can actually trust him in all of that. And then Jesus starts getting into the stuff that we're going to talk about today. And as we hit this, you got to understand, there are 36 weeks leading up to this. And if you have missed any of that or you're brand new, it's all on the podcast. Download it. Listen to it all by next week. You'll be totally caught up. It'll it'll be amazing. Because, again, Jesus is moving somewhere. He's got a trajectory to this. Now, some historical context. Uh, In Jesus' day, there are two major rabbis that people were teaching in the name of, meaning they were teaching a lot of what those rabbis taught. And so they started there and moved out from there. Now, Jesus, in Matthew seven twenty nine, it says he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. So he's teaching new things, but he's also teaching principles these other rabbis would have used to connect it all together. Today, hopefully in churches that claim that they love Jesus, they're teaching in Jesus' name. They're teaching the things that Jesus taught. And so Jesus, throughout the New Testament, has been using this Jewish principle, and it's called Gezerah Shavah. Shavah. What it means is similar law, similar verdicts. What that happens is a verbal connection is formed from one verse to another when they use the same words in both verses, and it makes it stronger. And this is referring more to what Jesus says that relates to Old Testament passages, but I'll show you how he even does it for you and I in the New Testament. So Matthew seven twelve, the verse we're looking at today, Jesus says, "...so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, and then notice this, for this is the law and the prophets." Now, stay at Matthew 7, but go over to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34, the religious leaders have been asking Jesus some questions. And Jesus answers the Sadducees, and he kind of shuts them down with his answers. Then in Matthew 22, verse 34, it says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, so the law and the prophets, expert in the law, tested him with this question, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And so they asked Jesus, "Okay, Jesus, out of our heritage, out of everything that we know to be the very words of life, you pick one and you tell us why that's the greatest commandment that's in there and what's your understanding of it. Now, you got to also understand that by asking this question, they're putting Jesus in a position of saying, if you mess this up, if you jack this up, we're going to kill you. I mean, so it's a very kind of a little tense situation. And they're hoping Jesus can answer because they really do want to kill him. They think you say, oh, you're so smart, Mr. Jesus Smarty Pants. Riddle me this. Okay. So they ask him the question. Jesus answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he goes on and gives them a bonus answer. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And now notice this. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Okay, so what we have just seen is Gezerah Shavad Jesus can actually we can tie these verses together because of how Jesus tied them together and Jesus by saying the law and the prophets is tying these things to things that were taught in the Old Testament in Exodus and Deuteronomy Matthew 7, 12 Jesus does this without even being asked so whatever you wish that others would do to you do also to them for this is the law and the prophets that's Gezerah Shavad putting these things together now if you went to Bible college and you go through these they're going to teach you a couple really important words okay the first word is called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. You're like, it makes no sense to me. Okay. Hermeneutics is the study of interpretation, the art of interpretation, the practice of interpretation, especially when it comes to the scriptures. Now, the word hermeneutics comes from the Greek god Hermes. He is the messenger of Zeus. Zeus would have a message for mankind. Hermes would have to take that out and then tell people what it meant. Have you ever tried to relate a word to somebody that nobody knew what it was? And you're like, oh, this is what that means. Like I put in the email update two weeks ago, Keystone Cops. Nobody knew what it meant. So I tried to explain what Keystone Cops meant. Doot, 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 doot. You still don't know, but, but that's okay. I, I tried, did my best to do my hermeneutics. Um, it's, again, the principle of interpretation. It's why one person can watch a horrible foreign film and think it was great, and someone else can watch a horrible foreign film and think it was horrible because it's a horrible foreign film. Now, now, okay, whatever. They're hermeneutics. It's why uh, Mel Gibson and Kenneth Branagh and Richard Burton can all do Hamlet, and some people will like certain versions. It's a type of hermeneutic. Now, the second word you'll learn is this word called homiletics. Homiletics is taking those hermeneutics and placing them into an understandable message, or in our case, a sermon. So you have Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount. Hermeneutics would be how he understood the Old Testament scriptures, and the homiletic would be how he preached it. And so we've been doing this for 37 weeks. Now the Jews for ages had their rules for this interpretation for their hermeneutics. They believed the Torah could be understood and discussed on four levels. What was simple, what was hinted at, was to be explored by like parables and then what was mystical. They believed it could be understood by common people and noble people and judges and scientists and lawyers and civil servants and mystics all together. And right after Jesus' day, there were four common people they looked at to do these type of hermeneutics for these laws of interpretation. And this is going somewhere, so trust me, okay? Uh, you had a guy named Zoar. Zoar had 42 rules of that, and he favored a mystical interpretation. You had a guy named Eleazar. He had 32 rules, and he tended to favor a parable type of hermeneutic. You had a guy named Ishmael. He had 13 rules, and they're aimed at lawyers and judges and scientists. Then you had the favorite that most people loved—a guy named Hillel. Hillel had seven. We're like... Thank God for Hillel. He only had seven. That's amazing. And his was aimed at simple interpretation because he believed everybody should be able to read and understand the scriptures. Three out of the four of these rules of interpretation, they all had this idea of Gezerah Shavah. Hillel was so influential that after him, they believed everybody else's laws and rules came out of his. Now, he is known for two sayings. Number one, he says, If I am not for myself, who will be? And when I am for myself, what am I? Oh, squish like grape. I, you know, what in the world do I mean? I don't know. Okay. So, but the second one, so I know you're all thinking, I'm supposed to look like this is really important. Yeah, okay, okay. Second one that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. That's the golden rule. That's Matthew 7 12. And so all future rules of humanity human come out of Hillel's views. He died at 10 AD. So when you get to Jesus and his teaching, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and the scribes that always keep hammering Jesus would have used Hallel's principles in their interpretation. It is why Jesus takes Hallel's greatest phrase that everybody knew and he changes it. From a negative into a positive. Hallel's that which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. Well, what if punching somebody in the face isn't really hateful to me? I guess I can do that to somebody else? No. So Jesus says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is Gezerah Shavah. He ties it to the Old Testament scriptures, and he also ties it to Hallel at the same time. He's a lot there's a lot going on. He's speaking deep into the heart of that culture. And so what I want to do with you this morning is I want to kind of speak deep into the heart of our culture. I want to try and speak deeply into who we are so we understand, I think, really what Jesus is getting to and what he's saying. We're going to take this hermeneutic and put it into a good homiletic. Are you ready? That was my intro. All right. Okay. So now I'm going to veer way off of course, but it's one course. Uh, pretty much every organization in the world uh, wants to know who their biggest competition is. So if you looked at somebody like Coca-Cola, who's their biggest competition? If you look at the rental car company, Avis, who's their biggest competition? Hertz, Enterprise, exactly, something like that. Uh, For Republicans, it's, you know, for PCs, it's, Apple, nice, I I like Mac, but Apple, okay, I'll take Apple, whatever, you know. And And so don't answer out loud, just kind of think of this, but what do you think is Christianity's biggest competitor? If you were to name the biggest rival that could claim the number of largest people from walking away from the way that Jesus actually calls us to live, what would that be? Don't say it out loud, just think about it, because the Bible actually talks about this. And it's not another religion, it's not a different faith, it's not the devil, it's none of those things. Because the biggest competitor to Christianity is more subtle than that. And the fact that it's this subtle means that millions of people go to church all the time, they read the Bible, they think they're following the way of Jesus, they may even go to element. But in reality, they're not actually following the way Jesus called us to live. They're pursuing the way of the biggest competitor to Christianity, not the way of Jesus, this is the way of works. Now, when works in themselves are not bad, when God saves us, we're to do good works. But when we focus on the works above everything else, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Well, you understand that Jesus makes it possible for you and I to live life with God forever starting now. But it starts with an understanding of grace or verses like Matthew 7, 12 are never going to make much sense to us at all. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so this is the idea that you have been rescued and redeemed and delivered as a gift of grace. And the alternative, again, to this is what we call works. You could even call this a spiritual performance plan, because we all understand this, because we live in a performance culture. We all live trying to perform for everybody else around us. When and where we live life, our culture is predicated on performance. i got to get the right grades so I can get into the right college, so I can get the right job, so I can date the right people, to marry the right spouse, to buy the right house, to have the right kids, get them into the right school so when I get old they can take care of me, you know, i got to achieve the right lifestyle, i got to build the right career, i got to put together the right resume, one day i got to die of the right disease at the right age, you know, I've got to have the right people come to my funeral, everything depends on how you perform. And if that is how you view Jesus and how you view God, then God becomes the ultimate performance evaluator. i got to perform at a high enough level uh, morally and spiritually compared to everybody else around me. i got to go to church enough. i got to give enough money. I have to volunteer enough. I have to read the Bible enough. I've got to do enough good deeds. And all of it is very exhausting. And this is what Jesus tells you. He says it's defeating. This is impossible. It's not His way. His way is the way of grace. And is God's love and God's favor and God's presence now, God's power now, God's forgiveness available to you and I as a free gift of grace? And you would think everybody would say, yay, grace. We love grace. Woo! Your grace is enough. Woo! Right? But we don't. We don't. Because grace kind of has this caveat run along with it because it's got a sticking point. You know, Paul says if it is by grace, there's no room for boasting. And that's not of yourselves. It's something you can't do yourself. In other words, if you're going to live in grace, it's a very deeply humbling thing. We have to become a humble people. It's a sticking point. I mean, imagine if a woman came up to me and she said, I'm going to marry you as a sheer gift. You didn't earn it. You know, you didn't merit it. You didn't achieve it. You don't deserve it. I'm just marrying you as a sheer act of grace. You know what I'd say? I do. Because I did. You know, that's kind of the story. You know, open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 17. See, we all say we want grace. We all love the thought of grace. But we don't really like grace because grace is humbling. Because we don't get to work for it. Grace says you have a problem. And your problem is you. It's not just lack of education. It's not just maturity. It's that we've been separated from a holy God. Our hearts are idol factories. We need to be rescued. We need to be saved. We have a problem. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? See, this truth is so lost in our day because we're always trying to talk to people's self esteem. Oh, we want you to feel better. I mean, seriously, you get Ebola and it's like, oh, let's not offend them. They got Ebola. Stick them in a room. Close the door. Don't go home in case your kids. No, you got Ebola. It's a big deal. I read The Hot Zone. Everybody dies. Ebola. Holy cow. The the prophets understood this. The prophets in the Old Testament got this. And they said any person with any type of of moral sanity and spiritual sanity is going to be undone by a thoughtful look at their hearts. When you look at the human condition, Jeremiah 17.10, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. That's a scary proposition. To the fruit of my deeds, my heart is wicked. And deceitful, above all things, it just is. You know, and that's not the only truth about the human heart, but that's the big truth about the human heart. What else is capable of more deceit? What else is capable of more darkness that leads to more darkness in human action? Now, every once in a while, I get a glimpse of the depth of my own heart, uh, mostly when I'm driving, you know, I try and hide it, but every once in a while. Uh, a few weeks ago, we're, at St- we're in staff we're talking about ways that help people learn to live on mission and love Jesus and do all these things. You know, good staff I'm out of the staff meeting and I'm like, okay, I got to go to Home Depot. You know, so really spiritual thing, right? So I'm driving to Home Depot and I'm, and, and I'm driving over here and you come up and there's those roundabouts, right? You come up in two lanes. I don't know why the roundabout always gets me, okay? So I'm driving up and there's two lanes. Now, if you're in the right-hand lane of the roundabout, what do you do? Turn right! Right. If you're going straight, someone you can both go in at the same time. It's okay. And the one on the left goes straight, and the one on the right goes right. Okay, so so drop people. It's an issue. My heart. Okay, so so you're, I'm driving up to the roundabout, and this person, she. Uh. I'm just being honest. Driving up, and and I know she's going to go straight. Okay. But I got a big truck, okay? So I'm driving, I see, and she looks at me, and she speeds up, and I go, oh, no, you don't. I'm being honest, okay? So, whoa, you know, I speed up, and she speeds up, and we get to the roundabout, and I get there first, and she just goes, and glares at me, you know? And all of a sudden, I get offended. I get angry. I'm like, what are you looking at me like that for? I mean, I want to chase her down, pull her over and go, do you not understand? You're in the right lane. You turn right. The right lane turns right. Dummy. Your heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Thus says the Lord. But I didn't. Because I saw the element sticker on my back window. So I just gave her the sign of blessing, which is not what you think. Okay. Just said, kept, kept driving. Guys, our hearts are messed up. our hearts are just waiting for somebody to offend us so we can feel so righteous in our anger. Oh, how look what you did to me. You hurt my feelings. How dare you? I'm going to be so mad at you. I'm going to hold this. I have a right to be so mad at you. And we hold it so deep inside. I mean, take that even deeper. Imagine today you're going to go to your buddy's house, you're going to watch the football game. But all of a sudden, instead of the game, on the TV gets played the innermost contents of your heart for everybody to watch. Everybody gets to see all your secrets, every hateful thought, every time you cut somebody off in the roundabout, every gossipy word, every greedy act, every time you've lied, every time your cell phone goes off during a sermon. <laughs> okay, you know, All the arrogance, all the superiority, all the ingratitude, all the complaints, all the out-of-bound fantasies, all the hidden habits, all the betrayal, every wrong choice, all the pretending, all All the guilty moments of our hearts which are deceitful above all things that is on-screen, 4K, HD, widescreen clarity. You would surely be embarrassed, right? You would think, boy, that Cain in the Bible, he wasn't so bad when you look at all this stuff. Imagine that experience, though, with the God of the universe who made you who he himself is perfect and holy and just and powerful, and he loves his creation, and it kills him to see it marred and twisted with darkness and deceit. The Bible talks about the idea that judgment is coming our way. And the prophets say any human being with any kind of moral or spiritual sanity is going to be undone by this, that there is a chasm between us and God. It's broader than anything we could cross. Our performance isn't going to cross it. And worse than that, the wages, the consequences, the inevitable outcome of sin, of darkness, of fallenness inside of me is death. It is physical death. It is spiritual death. Judged by my performance, there is no hope. Period. Period. The alternative way is Jesus' way. Grace. 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 Many people, when they hear the word grace, they tend not to understand how staggering grace is. And we hear grace, and we think, oh, that's a nice word. It's polite, and it's hospitable. It's like a low-cost transaction. Oh, that, you're, a, you're a gracious host. Or that was a gracious comment. The grace of God is nothing like that. Timothy Keller says this. Anytime somebody really gets what it means to be saved by grace, it will wreck you. It wrecks us because we understand our condition. John Ortberg tells this story of a few years ago his daughter was graduating from college. and Before the ceremony, they brought like 50 alumni and and graduates and faculty into this room together with three of the graduates. These three graduates are going to go into certain places in the world to very impoverished areas and spend their time working there. And so the three kids got to talk about what they were doing and, and where they were going. And that's why they thought they were in this room. But after it was over, the president of the school talks about the real reason why they're there. He looks at the first kid in the room and he says, somebody you don't know has heard about what you were going. To do and has given you a gift so you'll be able to serve without impediment. So he turns to the first student and he looks in their eye and he says, You have been forgiven your debt of $105,000. Everybody in the room just goes, What? John Ortberg goes, I wish my daughter was in that room, right there. <laughs> so the whole room, yeah, she starts to cry. He looks at the next guy and then he says, You've been forgiven your debt of $70,000. You know, and this guy starts to cry. Ortberg says, It's one of the most dramatic moments you would ever witness. And then he turns to the third girl, and she's just like, she's already sobbing, and she doesn't believe it till she hears the words. You've been forgiven your debt of $130,000. And he says, when you, when you watch them, everybody's heart is moved. Everybody starts crying in the room because they understood, they heard their forgiveness, and they experienced it as well. They experienced that same forgiveness as they were in that room. They get to feel it and see, it. because there's not a dry eye in the place. Now, do you understand that forgiveness always costs somebody something the Bible says the ultimate place of forgiveness that comes at the ultimate price is at the cross. The Bible uses a bunch of metaphors to convey the depth and the meaning of the cross. It uses the language of a marketplace that Jesus died to pay a debt that we can never pay. It uses the language of temple and worship that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice that we can never offer. It uses the language of courtroom and of justice that Jesus suffered the punishment, the guilty verdict, we can never survive. All of these, he's taking our place in them. I mean, we as a people must begin to understand what this means. Because if you do, grace is going to start to move you like nothing else in the world. I mean, grace lies at the heart of God. Without the cross, there is no such thing as Christianity. There is only a performance plan, and that's it. And at the cross, you are invited to what is called the great exchange. At the cross, nowhere else. At the cross where Jesus died, you know, we exchange our guilt for His innocence. We exchange our death for His life. We exchange our wounds for His healing. We exchange our captivity and enslavement for His freedom. We exchange our despair for His hope. The whole world is offered to make this great exchange at the cross. At the cross, our Father who are in heaven takes our old, idolatrous, messed-up heart and gives us a new one in its place. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to lead us, to guide us, to be our friend, our forgiver, our leader. And that can happen for you. It can happen for everybody. Grace always calls for a question. It's the question of Jesus. I have given myself for you. I'm calling. Are you going to surrender yourself to me? You're going know, to love and understand what grace is and actually live in the grace of God. I don't know if you guys saw this story. It was out of out of, on the East Coast. I think it was about last year. Uh, there's a couple uh, named Ada Bryant and Robert Hare. Anybody? No? Okay, I'll tell you the story. Then you'll get what I'm talking about. Uh, they met a few years ago. And there's this gap in their ages. They've been friends for a long time. But Robert finally reaches this place where he decides, you know, I, I love her and I, and I want to marry her. And Ada cared for Robert, but she couldn't bring herself to commit because of their gap in their ages. Uh, Robert's 86. Ada's is 97. Okay? He's a widower. She's, she's a widow. You may wonder why they wait so long to get married. I always think it's because they're waiting for the kids to die. <laughs> Went over better in first service. Okay, whatever. <laughs> Ada said this. She said, I don't think it was the right thing to do because of the great difference in our ages. I don't have many years ahead of me. And Robert says this that's all the more reason to do it. It's all the more reason to do it. See, a lot of people hear about grace and they hear about the cross and they hear about all the things that Jesus said and that Jesus has done. They're like, oh, but you don't understand all the more reason for the cross. Oh, but you don't understand wh- where I've been and the decisions I've made. All the more reason for the cross. You don't understand what I'm involved with right now, today, right before I walked in this room. All the more reason for the cross. But you don't all the more reason for the cross. That's grace. No matter your age, no matter your background, no matter how good or bad you think your performance has been, how large or small your regrets, everything can change. You get a new identity. You can have a new name. You can have a new family. But we've got to understand grace. And I think this is the point that Jesus is moving to with his people from the Sermon on the Mount, that we would understand grace differently. We become humbled. We become undone. It wrecks us. It's not that which is hateful to you do not do to your fellow. It is grace. It is so whatever you wish that others would do to you do also them for this is the law and the prophets. What is that? That's grace. What do we want? What do we need? We need grace. That's what we need. Your sins are paid for at the cross. You can have peace with God. The Holy Spirit can live in you so you're never alone. You can die to your old self and your old ways and live in a way that Jesus becomes the number one priority in your life. How do you know when that has happened? How do you know? You start to treat everyone around you differently. When you love Jesus, you understand the heart of God and you do to others the grace that you yourself have experienced you understand and you begin to extend grace whatever you wish that others do to you do also to them for this is the law and the prophets it's what all the scriptures were pointing to all of it because shavah grace it's all pointing to grace i mean the first verse that we started with this morning is that john fifteen seventeen these things i command you so you love one another what does he command grace that we would understand it. That we would get it. Because when we get it and it wrecks us and we understand how messed up we are and the grace of God that was still extended to us, how can we not extend that to other people? How in the midst of our own offense and hurts when people cut us off in the roundabout, you know, how in the midst of that when we understand grace so much better and our own offense, how can we then look at somebody and not come to the place we forgive them? How can we not seek reconciliation because our God first sought to reconcile with us? How can we not live the way that he calls us to live when we truly understand grace? It doesn't mean that you can't get on somebody's case for doing something stupid. Dude, that was messed up. You shouldn't do that again. But then work with them to the places where maybe their lives can change and they can understand grace too. See, it's not, it's not our hearts and the, and the offenses that we feel that bring us salvation. It is Christ and his forgiveness and His changing of our hearts. Making everything different and new. This is one of the reasons every single Sunday we bring you guys to communion. It's where re- we're reminded that when you break that cracker, it's like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice, reminding us of His blood that was shed for you and I. Because this is what was required to change and mold and save our hearts, to save us as a people. This is what grace required. And God himself paid the price. So we come to communion remembering that God has got a grace who has sought to seek and to save his people. The band's going to come up, as they do. We invite you guys, as I said, to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer... I mean, maybe you're in a place where you haven't really understood grace that well. You've always been on a performance plan. I've got to perform, 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 and if I do it right, then God will love me. If I don't, then, then God's going to not like me and he's going to shoot me with a lightning bolt or Aaron's going to cut me off in a roundabout. You know? If that's your, your performance plan, they would love to pray with you and talk to you about this. They would love to help you to understand the grace of who Jesus is. Because we, we need to come to a place where we understand it and live it and walk it differently in our lives. I think if, the, if Jesus' church really lived and understood grace and we actually did to others as we wanted, you know, this whole idea of doing unto others, I think the world would change. I really do. And there's offering boxes in the side in the back. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is also part of our worship. We don't pass a plate uh, it's a response to what God has done. And this is, again, why we do the majority of the music and we talk about offering and the message. And all this, we all this stuff after the message because it's a response to what he has done. Uh, there's spoon stuff in the back. We invite you to grab something to eat. Uh, grab some people around you and maybe you know, get together with some people this week and maybe talk about some of this stuff. If you've got an issue with somebody that you know, maybe they offended you and maybe they don't even know they offended you but you know they offended you and they should know they offended you even if they don't know they offended you yet, talk with them. Start to work these things out. Do unto others. Extend the grace that was extended to you. Because if you think about it, how often do we offend God? How often do we put ourselves in His place every single day? And what does He do? Paid for our sins, extends us grace, calls us into a relationship with Him. It's what He does. It's what He does. So how can His people do any different if we really call ourselves His people? So let's live the life God calls us to live one of grace and hope understanding his goodness in saving us. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would take us and help us to better understand your grace and your goodness. Father, honestly, as a people, it is so much easier to get hung up and caught up in who we are and what we want and the things that we think. It's so easy to be offended and hold on to the grudges that we so desperately want to hold on to. And it probably even scares us a little bit to let them go. Because we think that there is no justice if we don't hold the offense in our hearts. But in reality, just like our sins are paid for at the cross, those sins were as well. And so I ask that you would teach us to offer grace by speaking honestly when something was wrong. But dealing honestly in relationships and restoring relationship again. That you would teach us how to live in the great grace that you have first provided us. That we'd come out of places that we've all left ourselves, that we've all been in. And we lay down our burdens, we would lay down our shame so that we would worship you first and foremost. Understanding that worship of you would then translate into how we do unto others. Help us to fully understand your grace and your goodness. We ask this in your Son's great and good name. Amen.